I don't know if any of you caught on the news any of the videos from Iowa and the outbreak of the tornadoes that were there and uh, how they took the forecasters by surprise. There was multiple tornadoes in one state on one day. In fact, Debbie Fry said one her hometown she grew up in was hit by those tornadoes. Um, some testify to hearing the you know, roofs torn off the house and hearing the roar go past them, cracking, booming. Must be a frightful thing to be near a tornado. Maybe exciting for a moment and then turns frightful. Um, on one of those newscasts, a person was asked how they were doing, a person that was there, and the simple reply was, we went through a tornado and survived. I'm happy. I think that's how I would think too. There were a number injured. Thankfully, at least reported as of yesterday morning, there were no fatalities. Have you ever seen threatening skies and you've seen the storm moving towards you? You realize you're in the path of the storm and that sky looks terrifying. You can imagine what those people were thinking, what, uh, what was going through their hearts and their minds. I imagine even unbelievers would lift up a prayer to God, God, please save me, please help me, please protect me. There's no controlling a tornado. Man can't control a tornado. Uh, people, when they're in a situation like that, before a hurricane, shaking of ground with an earthquake, they realize very quickly how helpless they are, how vulnerable they are, how they're not really in control of anything. I know men like to be proud and self-confident and self-assured, but when you face the wrath of nature, you quickly realize how small you are and how death can come very, very quickly. Obviously, believers, especially when they're faced with something threatening, turn to God quickly, and they pray to God, and they ask God for help, and they receive from God peace, a peace that passes all understanding, as Paul wrote. When we left off last time in the book of Acts, we heard the words from some local authorities in Jerusalem threatening the church. You may not teach or speak anymore in this name, Jesus. They wanted to do away with the, the name Jesus Christ. And they directly threatened two of the chief apostles, Peter and John. And I, I know, and I'm sure they knew and understood these were not empty threats, that they had already worked to crucify their Lord Jesus Christ, and so the, the real possibility of bodily harm and of death was there. So when we left off, we, we had that kind of looming in front of the church for the first time. Now, we are reading backwards, and we read all of the book of Acts, and we kind of know the story of what happened, but at this point in time, this was their first persecution. This was the first threat of persecution toward them. And so they knew it could cause harm, harm them and their lives every bit as much as a tornado or any destructive storm. As we read on in the book of Acts, we see that in their whirlwind of hatred, if I can call it that, toward the name Jesus, it really only served 
God's purposes. It really only served to blow the church in the direction in which God wanted the church to go, to scatter them and to spread the gospel further and faster into the world toward the Gentiles and towards the diaspora of Jews that were in various places in the world at that time. It also sent the church into relying on God's power for help. And that's what we're going to read about today in Acts chapter 4. We're up to verses 23 through 31 and invite you to follow along as I read that text. Acts chapter 4, verses 30, 23 through 31. It says, when they, the apostles, had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. The episode of the lame man is now over, but not really. Because the effects of that healing and the aftermath continue. They linger on. That healing and the testimony that came afterward in the Jewish council was the impetus that God used to thrust the church forward into its next stage of development. As we journey forward in the book of Acts, we will see that the church in Jerusalem will never return to that pristine and tranquil state it had there for the first year or so after Jesus was lifted up into heaven. As the church faced threatening clouds, so to say, and then the actual storm of persecution that would come, that church would learn to rely on the sovereign power of God. That's a great lesson for us to get from this text, to rely on the sovereign power of God during threatening times. This reliance is brought out with three events or three happenings in the passage. First, we see very briefly in verse 23, the apostles' extensive report back to the church as to what happened. And next, we, which this takes the bulk of the passage, we uh, read of their earnest prayer in verses 24 through 30, and then God's earth-shaking answer in verse 31. So we'll cover each of these three 
uh, happenings. First, their extensive report. If you would float your eyes back up to verse 23, it says, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. It's a brief statement. That's nice. It says that they were free to go. That's, that's good for them. That doesn't mean that the ruling Jews were good guys by any means. It just means that the ruling priests found no reason to hold them. That was made abundantly clear in the previous text. These apostles healed a man. How on earth was that supposed to be contrived and twisted into being a crime? They knew the Jewish populace would never go with that. They'd never buy into that explanation. And so they released them. And when the apostles left, they went directly where? They went to their, to their own. Literally, it says in Greek, they went to their own. It includes, I'm sure, the remainder of the apostles. It likely included other leading men and some of the more prominent women, maybe even their own family members. And they decided they would report the whole thing to them, the whole incident to them. They recounted the wording of the council. They probably very especially gave the wording of the threat that was now given to this local congregation. By the way, notice that Luke indicates that the threats were coming from the chief priests and the elders. Interestingly, the scribes are not mentioned there. We don't know exactly why. The scribes were mostly Pharisees. The chiefs and the ruling elders were Sadducees. So it could be that this is an acknowledgement that the power to punish, the real power in the ruling council came from the chief priests and from the Sadducees. They were kind of running the show, and they the ones that really gave the threat So in this church meeting that they're having here, a very important church meeting, you know how it is when you call a meeting and and everyone realizes this is one of the more important meetings, people tend to show to those meetings, this was a meeting, and by the way, yes, please notice that they had meetings in the early church just like we have now, but the purpose of this meeting (coughs) was not only to report what happened, but to gather everybody so there could be unity of mind. We're going to have to go forward with this, what do we do with it? We've now been threatened what do we do? They wanted to respond collectively. They were a body. They knew they were a body. They wanted the whole body to be strengthened, to be of one mind, to kind of be shored up. What do we do? How do we go forward? How do we get ready for this? This was hard news to hear. Just imagine if someone reported back here from here on out, this church has been ordered by the authorities, and I know we have a hard time thinking of that here in America, but imagine that. The threat has been given, and if you go on talking any more about this name Jesus, there will be substantial punishment, maybe confiscating your property, maybe bodily harm, flogging, imprisonment. Just imagine what this church was thinking and going through at this point in time. How would it affect them? can only imagine. I've never been under direct persecution like that. You might have to use a little imagination. How would you be impacted with that news coming, seeing the seriousness of this in the eyes of your leaders? How would it impact you? How would it impact any community of believers? People are people in any age, right? They get scared. They're just ordinary people here. We're reading about them in the Bible, but they just were ordinary people. Some of them, I think, would have been quite intimidated by this, wondering, where is all of this going to lead? What did I get involved with here? Were they ready to go to prison for Jesus? Could they watch their loved ones being flogged and bleeding because they stood for this gospel? Were they willing to do that? Is that where they were in their faith? 
You know, we said that one reason that God allows persecution is that it'll weed out the disingenuous, purify his church. There actually is a thing which my pastoral ministry professor Alex Montoya called blessed subtractions to a church, blessed subtractions. People who are in the church outwardly, but they're not true believers inwardly, and they hinder the church or they poison the church in some way. When the going is fine, lots of people will flock to the church, say, I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. But when the going gets tough, we say, the tough get going. No, that's not right. When the going gets tough, we go and we appeal to the grace of God to help us to become tough because we're not. The truth is that true believers, when they're threatened, fall to their knees, and they ask God, make us strong, help us out. The disingenuous, they run, they flee, they scurry away. Um, I, like any pastor, would like to know which of us is willing to stand shoulder to shoulder with other believers when the going gets tough, because it will, it will happen, it will get tough. I would like to know, I think many of you would like to know, who is it that's going to hightail it out of here when the going gets tough? We can't really know, can we? And that's why persecution comes. Time and testing reveals what is true. You should be praying for your own development of your own faith, the own development of your own heart. What is it like, really? What testing have you gone through? How is the the, the comments that come against you as a Christian, how is that helping you to know and be ready for things that might get worse, worse oppression? Pray your heart will be steadfast to the Lord. Where your heart is weak and where it is feeble, earnestly beg the Lord Jesus Christ to make His grace sufficient in your own heart. See, this news may have had some in that community calculating how are they going to exit out the back door. How are they going to get out of this? How are they going to vamoose, just get away? I noticed that even apart from persecution, some members of our church join. They say a words of a covenant that they will do, a covenant that's based on Scripture, but they don't keep it. Their words don't really matter. They just disappear. They make excuses. They blame the church. Then we know what the truth is about them because actions speak much, much louder than words do, right? Persecution reveals a lot about a church. It reveals a lot about a body of believers. It accelerates the departure of the disingenuous. Did that happen here? We're not told. But I imagine because people are people, in some cases, this happened. Even when the Lord Jesus was developing and gathering disciples in John chapter 6, he started teaching some difficult things, and they weren't even being persecuted at that point in time. But they said, who can listen to this? This is a difficult saying. And in mass, people were departing from Christ. Well, that happens in the church. People go so far. They sing the songs. They like the food gatherings. But when they're called to account or when things get hard for the church or when time is required or money, you find out what really is in their hearts, who they really are. They talk a good talk, but the real test and the real proof is in how they live and how they live in their loyalty to the body of Christ. Persecution also helps those who stay get past all of their minor squabbles and learn to get along with one another. Would you agree? 
If you have a minor squabble with somebody here, and all of a sudden this church would be attacked from the outside, you'd realize it really was minor. And so isn't it better to try to get past your squabbles and your disagreements now and just, you know, agree with one another and and work with one another? That helps out so much because if we don't do that now, it'll certainly happen when we're attacked as a church or when we're oppressed or when we're threatened as a church. Well, I love the example of Peter and John, and we talked about this when they were so boldly standing before the council, and the council was impressed with their boldness and how well they were communicating the Word of God. I imagine that when they returned home and they made this report at this church meeting, that the rest of the apostles and the rest of the leaders looked in their eyes and sensed their confidence and saw that Peter and John were not afraid at all. They saw this as a great opportunity. They really did. They came back with a full assurance, look, the Lord is guiding us. The Lord will lead us forward. They knew God was up to something, and it it made their faith bold. It made them optimistic about the future for the church. And so that rubbed off on the others. And notice next, they go to the Lord in prayer. Second, we see their earnest prayer in verse 24. If you see that, look at that, all the way down to verse 30. They immediately turned to God. They immediately acknowledged God. They said, Lord, you're Lord over creation. You're even Lord over the the history of men and the happenings that happened around Jesus Christ. You're you're Lord over these things. And they turn to God in prayer. Notice they start their prayer with praise for God. They acknowledge his sovereignty. Look at verse 24. And when they heard this, what's the this? The report that Peter and John gave. What was their immediate response? They lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, It is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You're powerful, God. And those were powerful words to acknowledge at a time like that. They made it clear that they knew when when they were operating as a church and they were talking (coughs) and praying to God who they were talking to. You made everything. The they is probably the church leaders at that time. I I doubt they could get all 5,000 of the believers in one building there so they could all speak at one time. But this was the prayer that would have been disseminated. It's the one that they prayed right there at that point in time. Maybe one of the men or some of the men led in prayer. But it it was a prayer that the entire congregation agreed with. You know, when we're having a pastoral prayer and there's one voice talking, I'm constantly asking you, please agree with this. Let's pray together. They lift it up, it says, with one accord. In Greek, that is hamathumadon. It means with one will. They all felt the same way about that. They were believers together. They didn't live just individual Christian lives. They, they lived as a body, and they f- felt they could face the persecution together. And the church was their family. And the devil might throw things at them, but together they would be able to handle it. This is how we should be in the church. This is how we should pray as saints with one accord. It says in Romans chapter 15 and verse 6, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're about. That's what we should be doing collectively. And so their immediate impulse, their immediate reaction to a threatening storm was to lift up their voices to a powerful God. And they prayed out loud. That's how the Jews prayed. They didn't go in and try to contrive some kind of a church strategy to deal with the threat of persecution. This was not a pragmatic church. They prayed first. Why? Because the solution was not in themselves. The solution was with God and His power, right? 
If you want boldness and danger, you don't just decide how you're going to maneuver. All that does is really reveal cowardice. They didn't want to be cunning. They didn't want to be clever. They wanted to face this with boldness. The solution really always is about relying on the omnipotence of God. Would you agree? The sovereignty of God. Same God that said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The solution was to look to the king of glory. He is the one who reigns supreme, not just over the church. He, he said before he departed from the believers, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them. He knew there'd be opposition when he sent the disciples out there. He told them there'd be opposition. And he said, I have all authority. I'm not just the head of the church. I have all authority even over all of the governments, over all of the world. I have all authority. So that breathes confidence into these soon-to-be persecuted apostles. That blessed doctrine, beloved, the sovereignty of God, the lordship of Jesus Christ, was not just something they taught in Sunday school class. Right here, with darkness looming, possible imprisonment for them, financial loss, separation from families, yes, physical beatings, they depended on the truth of that doctrine. Yes, they prayed it to God. They knew God must be in this venture or all we do is in vain. And so they began with praise to a sovereign God, even as Jesus had taught them, always start with praise, hallowed be thy name, Father. They addressed God as their Lord, notice. That's not the usual term for Lord, kurios, that we, we often see. This is the Greek term despata, which means a slave owner, a master. We actually get our uh, English word despot for that. It has a very negative connotation in English, doesn't it? Like this very selfish ruler or something like that. But here it's talking about God's absolute sovereign control. He answers to nobody, and thank God he's a good God, right? Because with that kind of authority, he would abuse it if he was evil, but he's not evil. Because he's thoroughly good, he has absolute sovereign sway over everything. He is the universe's despot, but in the good sense, he controls all things. He's master and Lord. He's a perfect monarch. He doesn't have to ask Congress. He does as he pleases. And they appeal to him. They pray to him. Oh, despot, oh, ruler, oh, master in the sky, we talk to you now with this threat that is coming. And so they appeal to the one who has actual authority. I mean, there there are all these priests and they act like they have all this authority and they're really smug and they're confident in themselves and they like to exert their power. And it's almost like they ignore that and say, do listen to them, but we're appealing to you. You have the real authority. God made the heavens and the earth. They didn't. God made the heaven. God made the earth. God made the sea and God made everything inside of them, all the levels. Whatever you see on the land, whatever's out there in the ocean, whatever up in the sky and beyond that, God made it. Everything in it. He made it all. We're talking to him. We're talking to a God who did all of that. A God who's like that, a God who made all of that. To have access to pray to him, what a privilege for the church. And they wanted just to express, we know you made everything. This is who we're talking to. If you could talk to a God like that, what would you say? Oh, wait, you can talk to a God like that. 
They knew the threat against God's church. It, it may cause them some suffering, but it'll never harm the cause of Christ. They can't do it. They cannot stop this. Jesus said, I have all authority. Go make disciples of all the nations. These guys were not going to be able to stop that. And because their hearts were in the kingdom and their hearts were in the work of the church, it was okay for them to suffer bodily harm. It was okay for them to suffer financial loss. They were not building their own kingdom. They were on earth building the kingdom of Christ, and they could roll with this. They could go in the direction of what God's sovereignty would produce. They were okay with it. They knew no one can rule the hand of God. God will put his hand out and God will begin doing things behind the scenes, an invisible hand. And who will stop that hand? Nobody. Nobody limits God. Nobody slows him down. Nobody makes God go, "Uh uh-oh, wait, what am I going to do now? Men can't even stop one tornado. How are they going to stop the omnipotent hand of God? And they knew that. And they acknowledge God properly as they start to prayer. And next they present their case to the Lord. Now you might not pick up on this when you're reading through this, but they're actually presenting a scriptural case to the Lord as to why they're asking the request they're asking. That's important in prayer. And that's a very important lesson to learn about prayer. Look at verse 25. You who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples devised futile things. Verse 26, the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. What are they doing? They're quoting Psalm 2. They're quoting the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, almost word for word here. They're quoting it as the reason for their bringing their petition to God. It shows that the early church was biblical and theological. They thought through what they were doing and what requests they were making to God. They were not just saying, God, we're being threatened, help us. It was much more than that. They reflected on what scriptures apply, what's pertinent to our situation. And they brought that into the presence of the Lord. They said, the Holy Spirit spoke through David and he said these things. And by the way, that's a great definition of biblical inspiration. They understood when they turned to Scripture that they were dealing with a book that was not written by men. I mean, David spoke it, it got written down, but it was the Holy Spirit who spoke through him. So there's two authors to Scripture. There's there's the man who wrote it, but there's the God, the Holy Spirit, who inspired it. So there's two authors, and they speak simultaneously. So when someone says the Bible is a work of men, therefore it can't be a work of God, they're wrong. Because God took men, and God spoke through men, and God wrote through men. And that's what they're, they're recognizing. And they're saying, God, you spoke, and you spoke it through David, and now we're taking your words, and we're bringing them back to you. Surely you agree with them. They're your words. So we believe in confluence, inspiration. We believe in verbal inspiration. That is, it's not just the ideas in the Bible that are inspired, but every word was chosen by God. We believe in plenary inspiration, which means not just the parts of the Bible we like are inspired, but all of it is inspired from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation 22. But we also believe in confluent inspiration. That is, the inspiration did not come with God just talking directly and dictating the Bible, but he took the minds and the vocabularies and the life experiences of human beings, and his sovereignty is so great, even over inspiration, he could take all of that and make sure that the product is exactly the message he wanted written. And that's what the Bible is. It's a supernatural book. That's why it can predict the future. That's why whatever it says will come to pass, comes to pass. Because it's God's word. 
Isn't this exactly what we read in the New Testament in 2 Peter 1, verse 20? Paul said, uh, Peter said, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved, pushed by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And so they knew, this is what God said, and it's in Psalm 2, and they knew that, that Psalm 2 was the word of God and that in that psalm, God was warning all the kings and the rulers of the world, you need to do homage to the Son of God because I'm going to take him and I'm going to put him in Israel. I'm going to put him in Jerusalem on Mount Zion and I'm going to install him there. And when I install him there, my advice to you as kings in the world is to come and pay your tribute to him and bow down before him because he's going to rule the world with a rod of iron and shatter you like earthenware if you stand in his way. That's Psalm 2. I love Psalm 2. Psalm 2 just breathes the sovereignty of God. You think men are in charge. You know, we, here they were looking at this council, this Jewish council, and they could have said, wow, they have a lot of authority. They're Sadducees. They're the high priest. Oh, my, look what they did. And they didn't think that way. And we shouldn't think that way. Oh, my, the governor of Maryland is, is upset with our church. So what? So what, right? doesn't matter who's in the White House. They don't have that much power anyways. They really don't. But what if it was a foreign country and, and they really were despots and they came in here and they said, no more Christianity in your country. We took you over. We just say, try to stop it if you can. Because you can't. You can't. By the way, they don't allow it in China all that much. And I hear you, there's more Christians in China than any other country in the world. How does that work? The greatest military power in terms of world conquest in terms of absolute sway over the people they conquered, many historians still believe was the Roman Empire. Rome couldn't put out Christianity. Ain't nobody can do it. Ain't nobody can do it. And Psalm 2 kind of says that. And they're quoting Psalm 2 and applying it to their first century situation. Look at verse 27. For truly in this city, they're talking about Jerusalem, There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. There's so much rich truth in that terminology for Christ. Your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Notice that. Beloved, this was a church that believed in the sovereignty of God. They rightly saw in the events that surrounded them in the first century, the events of Jesus' rejection, Jesus' crucifixion there in the first century, and now their rejection as a church that's preaching the name of Jesus, their rejection by the Sanhedrin. They rightly saw a fulfillment of Psalm 2. The prophecy of Psalm 2 had an initial fulfillment here In the first century, Jesus the Messiah, that's whom Psalm 2 is speaking about, is God's own holy servant. He's the anointed one. That means he's the Messiah, the one that's been anointed uh, by God to be king, to be prophet, to be priest. He's all of them rolled in one. He's God's anointed one. God has established Jesus to rule, anointed him to rule. But the rulers of the world gathered together against God's Messiah because of their folly and because of the evil in them. And they saw that in their day happening against Christ. And here they point out what happened 
in the first century with Jesus, it matches this. These rulers opposed Christ. I mean, there was Herod, and Herod mocked him. And there was Pilate, who acknowledged he was innocent, but still acquiesced to his death. And and the Jewish rulers urging on, let's do away with this one who calls himself the king. And there they were opposing God's Messiah. And so Psalm 2 has a first century initial fulfillment. But Psalm 2 talks about the actual ending triumph of the Messiah in Jerusalem. And so it has an ultimate fulfillment that transcends the first century. Every detail of the psalm was not taken care of there in the first century. There was going to be a military defeat of Messiah's enemies in the end times. In fact, we don't have time for it today, but in Revelation chapter 17, starting around verse 8 and to the end in verse 14, it's a prophecy of, of the end times and the final fulfillment, I think, of Psalm chapter 2. It says in verse 14 of Revelation 17 that the kings will wage war against the Lamb. You know who the Lamb in Revelation is, right? It's the Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified for our sins and laid his life down like a lamb to the slaughter. And the Lamb will overcome them, it says, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. I'm looking forward to that day. The Lamb will wage war in the end time, and all the armies that come against Israel, His chosen nation, He will return and He will butcher them and liquidate them and massacre them and slaughter them because He's Lord over all lords and King over all kings. The end times kings will battle against Jesus because the same Antichrist spirit is in them that was in Herod and was in Pilate and was in the Sanhedrin council. But here this church saw the application of Psalm 2 to their situation in the first century, this united opposition against Christ. So both at the first coming and the second coming, there will be fulfillment as Jesus is opposed. But in quoting this psalm, while they're praying, remember, they are demonstrating their belief in God's sovereignty. Whatever evil the rulers do. Their conclusion was that they did whatever God predestined would happen. Brothers and sisters, predestination is taught in your Bible. It is a doctrine you should believe. God says it's true. When evil men do evil things, they only carry out exactly what God predestined to occur. What does that mean? That means that whatever decisions they or evil angels make, they're only falling into the trap that God has already laid for them. He is sovereign over the decisions of evil men and women and even spirits. That's what the scriptures teach. This early church believed that. They were quoting the sovereignty of God back to God and appealing on the basis of that doctrine and that characteristic of God that he would work in their situation. They demonstrated their belief in the sovereignty of God. Yes, these were evil men. These were heinous men. These were satanically driven men. Whatever Satan thinks up, God is so far ahead of him. These events were pra-arizo. 
marked out ahead of time. Horizo, come, we got our word horizon from that. God marked out what was going to happen, and he did it before it happened. It wasn't that God guessed. It wasn't that God looked in the future. It's God determined it to happen. He literally marked out what would happen, and it happened. What would happen, how it would happen, when it would happen, where it would happen, to what degree it would happen, why it would happen, and what order it would happen, who would do it, all predestined by God. It was all part of an immovable plan. It was done by God's boule is the term here, his will. You have a translated purpose. He has a purpose. He has a will. He expresses his will. He imposes his will on the universe. There's an invisible hand that is always working. Unbelievers mock it. Where's your little invisible God? His invisible hand is always at work and will shut the mouths of those people at one day. We have to believe that. We who have faith have to have eyes to see that. God works all the time on our behalf. Now, this prayer is just filled with confidence in the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. The early church were not Arminians. They were not free willers. God's hand, God's will, predestination, they acknowledge it right here, and they all did it collectively. There was no disagreement in the church about this doctrine. They were all unified in their understanding of the the predestined sovereignty of God at play in their day. God's hand was working. God's will was unopposed. If someone did something terrible and it even came at that, they said it's all just according to what what you've already planned. Man ultimately has no say. Dr. John MacArthur rightly notes, God is the supreme historian who wrote all history before it ever began. Brothers, no theology is sound that leaves God reacting and responding to the decisions of men and not knowing what to do. To understand God properly and to appeal to God in prayer powerfully, we must have the sovereignty of God in view. Some have said, on their knees, all Christians are Calvinists. Why else talk to God about what someone else needs to decide? Overrule them. Overrule their foolishness, Lord. Grant them eyes to see, Lord. What are you saying? Your will, your will prevail, you see. The early believers did not feel in any way that they were at the mercy of evil men. They believed in the sovereignty of God over evil men. They didn't look at the events of Jesus as some of the foolish modern theologians have said and said, poor Jesus. He presented himself to be the Messiah of Israel and he was such a nice guy, but they killed him, poor guy. What a blasphemous understanding of Jesus. No, he was in charge. He even said, no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down on my own accord. When they came to arrest him, you remember what Christ said? I was with you every single day in the temple and you did not arrest me. But this hour and the power of darkness has been given to you. You wouldn't even get here to get me if God hadn't given it. It's all controlled. It's all controlled. Do you believe that? It's all controlled. What happens in your life, what happens to this church, it's all controlled. God's in charge. He's not a bystander. He's not sitting there with popcorn watching what happens and then trying to move the chess piece to stay a little bit ahead. The whole chess game was already planned. Every move. 
I don't know how he does it. I don't have to explain to you how he does it. I just have to tell you, you have to believe it. God has a way. He allows men to make real choices. He doesn't violate their wills, but what they choose is exactly what he already willed. And whatever evil happens, he works it all for good to those who love him. Romans 8. Nothing in human history has ever deviated from God's predetermined plan. Romans 11, when Paul tries to explain all of this in Romans right, 9, 10, and 11, right? He gets to the end and he says, how unfathomable are God's ways? How does it work? Having the foggiest. But it's everywhere embedded in Scripture and we need to believe it. When the church is under duress, when it faces a storm, it prays. It prays to a sovereign God that can move tornadoes or bring them right at them and so be it. God's in charge. The church, our church, depends on the invisible hand of God. Please notice how pinpointed and confident their request is in verse 29. And now, Lord, after we've, after we've laid our scriptural case out to you, Lord, as to why we're asking what we're asking, remember you said anything that you ask according to your will, we can have confidence that you've heard us and you'll grant this. Well, we have confidence that you've heard us because here's your will. And he says, now, Lord... The order here is important. They've laid out their case. Now, now, Lord, take note of their threats. And now what I would have prayed right here is blast them away, Lord. (laughs) Send down fire and brimstone. Sodom and Gomorrah all over again, baby. Let's have it rain down on all of them. It's not what they pray. By the way, a lot of the commentators have likened this prayer and said that the impetus or the origin of this prayer might be back in Isaiah 37 when Hezekiah's king was about to be invaded by a foreign army and he was king of Israel and he took the threatening letter and he unscrolled it and he put it in the presence of God and he said, God, take note of their threats. Do you see they're threatening your country and, and blast our enemies and destroy them? That's what Hezekiah prayed. But the apostles here never prayed for judgment on them. Do you see that? Grant that your bondservants may, well, another one I would have snuck in there is run fast away so they can't catch me. Grant that your bondservants may, what did they ask? Look at it. What did they ask? Speak your word with all confidence. While, verse 30, you extend your hand to heal And signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Lord, take note of their threats. Be aware of what they've done. They opposed your Messiah. They're trying to shut us up. All we're doing is preaching the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So here's our petition, Lord. We do not ask you to destroy them. We do not ask you to rain down judgment on them. We ask you, the sovereign God, grant us your Slaves, your bondservants, give us the ability to speak the word of God with confidence. Does that tell you something that tells you that they had natural fears also? Do you see that? If they were naturally confident people, why would they need to pray for that? But when they faced dangers, it was normal. It's normal to have fear. Every single time an angel appears, it seems, somewhere in the Bible, the first words out of their mouth is what? Fear not. What do you mean fear not? You just like... Show up in my bedroom. Freak me out. Of course I'm afraid. (laughs) 
from their perspective, there's nothing to fear. Calm down. It's okay. Heaven's working on your behalf. Don't you believe that? Uh, yeah. As slaves of Christ, they just want to do their master's will with dauntless, fearless courage. And if ever there's a time where they needed to increase their courage, their valor, is when they knew they were about to face a spiritual battle. Give your bondservants. Notice they don't even say confidence. They say all confidence. I don't know what that is. I was trying to figure out what's the difference between give me confidence and all confidence. I guess it's confidence like to the max or confidence in every situation in which I'm going to be in. Give me a lion's heart to dispel all fear, the fear that wants to rise up quickly in our hearts. Overcome that with something only you can grant. Grant us courage. Grant us that boldness, that freeness of speech. We have been given not a spirit of fear or timidity, remember? 2 Timothy 1.7, but one of power. I would say to us also from this very text, persecution and times of threat and times of oppression are not times for the people of God to become cowards. It is not the time for us to look at how we think the politics will work out in the United States of America and tremble in the knees. This will be our opportunity to have greater ministry than at any other time in our lives. With persecution comes a lot of open ears, a lot of eyes that look at us, a lot of power from the Lord. We will have greater ministry than we have ever had in in our lives when that happens. They knew fear was not from God. They asked for power. They knew the opportunities that were before them there. We should understand the opportunities that are before us now. We are in an increasingly hostile culture towards true Christians. False Christians who want to acknowledge whatever the the political situation is saying during the day, whatever they just want to roll with what other people are saying and just act like that's being good or something like that, all of that, they'll fit in just fine. It's those of us that say, wait, what? That's perversion. We're the ones that will be attacked. There are political rulers, especially coming from the left right now in America, but really don't trust any because they all have their own agendas. There are pundits who constantly distort the truth of Christianity and then act like it's not something to be believed. You know the spirit that's behind that. The news is not benign. There are worldly churches that join the rebellion and act like they're being faithful while mocking people that are being faithful. We need courage. And not to be obnoxious. This is not, you know, speak in the face of people that never want to be talk to. People don't want to listen to you. Move on. Find someone that wants to listen. We're not here to be obnoxious or disrespectful. We're not to intrude where where they don't want to hear, but we want to be valiant. We want to be free in proclaiming it widely so it will land on the ears of those who do want to hear it. And by the way, if you've been bold before and God filled you with the Spirit and God gave you courage, remember, you can get afraid again. Remember Elijah? Bold as a lion on Mount Carmel, right? Slaughter the prophets of Baal. And then this one woman says, I'm going to kill that prophet Elijah. And he puts tail between the legs, scurries out into the wilderness, said, God, kill me. He's afraid. You can be bold, but you need to ask God for strength again. Really, the advice that Peter will give later when he writes 1 Peter helps 
with this looming, approaching opposition against true Christianity. He writes there, and I'll just read the passage. This is 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety. This was anxiety of the fear that was, was coming with persecution. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God will allow you to suffer for a little while and then give you eternal glory in Christ. Come on, walk through it. Walk through the valley of the shadow of death. God is with you. On the other side is a great green pasture. It is God's will, the church spread the gospel, persecution or no persecution. In Acts chapter 8, later we'll read how everybody, not just the apostles, went around spreading the gospel. But to do it, we need to know what we're up against and be alert against it. And of course, in the case of the apostles, they prayed that God would continue to do what they just did with the layman, provide healings and signs and wonders, these powerful indisputable healings that have the hand of God in them, not these psychological kind of faith healings. Today, people talk about a genuine, and even so, unbelievers cannot say anything about it. Wow, that was a miracle. That's how it was. And the, and the signs is just a miracle that has an arrow pointed to it. In other words, because this miracle happened, you better be listening to these men that performed the miracle. Who are they speaking about Jesus? They're doing it in his name. The sign points to them. Listen to the gospel they have. That's why God gave the apostles these signs and these wonders. The term wonders just means when they see the miracle, the jaws drop open and their eyes bug out and they are in wonder. We said before in Acts, the early church was not, listen, was not a miracle-working church. It had a miracle-working God working through the apostle. All of that miracles was done for the benefit of the name Jesus, for the lifting up of the name Jesus, for the glorifying of the very name that ruling counselor said, don't speak in that name anymore. This is not a time for us to speak Jesus' name less or be embarrassed about him being the only Savior that is given to mankind. Well, the third happening, and just briefly, and the final one here, is God's earth-shaking answer, literally. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place, it doesn't tell us where this was, it's somewhere around Jerusalem, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. Now, earthquakes are fairly common there, but they just finished praying. Sometimes you may wish, you know, at times like that, God will just talk to you and give you a message. And, and, and God did not talk to them, and God did not give them a message other than he shook the whole ground around them. And they knew what that meant. I've already told you, go into all the world and make disciples. I already said, lo, I'll be with you into the end of the age. You just made a petition to me as the maker of heaven and earth. I just shook the earth on your behalf. I'm with you. My power will attend you. And they knew what it meant. 
And that was the first answer to prayer. The second really kind of goes, the second and third goes together. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. These are not uh, the, the constant fullness of the Spirit we're exhorted to have in Ephesians 5. These are the fillings and the refillings we read about in the book of Acts where Peter was filled and then, and then another situation would come. He'd need to be refilled and another situation would come and he'd be refilled. We've already seen that happen three times to Peter. And this is enablement. This is spiritual power and enablement to be able to speak. And this was given now to, to many of them. We don't know how many. Surely it extended beyond the apostles. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. This was not a second Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had already been given. They already had the Holy Spirit. This was a filling of the Spirit that was already given to them. And they went out and they spoke and they spoke boldly. They spoke in their own language. Some have said this was the gift of tongues. It was not. This was in their own language. They preached the word of God, and they preached it, the gospel, with boldness, just like Peter and John had done in the temple, and just like they testified before the Sanhedrin. Beloved, we need that kind of power, too. We need to be full of not ourselves. We need to be full of the spirit of Christ. I need you to pray for me in that regard. You need to pray for all of our teachers and preachers. We need to pray for you because you will be put in some situations where you may not like to speak, but you need to get over your fears because God wants to use you. He's chosen you for some things he wants to do through your life. And don't you get on the phone and and call me and say, Pastor, would you talk to him? This one's dialed up for you. And that's what I'm going to say. Be bold, my son. (laughs) Click. (laughs) This is for you. God wants you to be bold. God's going to put you there as well. So they went out and they spoke the name Jesus boldly. It's a little phrase I like. In the end, Jesus wins. I'm not a loser. It may look like it. I'm okay with that. I'm a winner because I gave up my life, which I was going to lose anyways. I gave it to Christ, and in the end, Jesus wins, and he says, I share my victory with all. Why would we want to be quiet about the name of the king of kings who wins over all in the end? If you believe that, if your eschatology at least says that much, In the end, Jesus Christ wins over all. And why are we afraid? We get it all in the end, yes? No other name saves. No other name is the name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved except Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer of mankind, the King of kings, our shepherd. Amen? Father, thank you for this truth. Please allow it to grow in confidence in our minds and our hearts. Use the collective body here and in our sister churches around this region that are so faithful to your word also, Lord. Please help us all to be bold, to speak your righteous standards, not because we're holier than anybody, but because you have said it and because it brings blessing to people when we obey your commands. Father, help anyone who's here today to know that they're a sinner and there's nothing that they can do to save themselves that they must come to your son and beg him for forgiveness and you will forgive all their sins freely as a gift, unearned and undeserved because you're just a generous, loving and gracious God and you work on behalf of your church who has now heard your word and has now said, thank you, thank you, 
O Lord God, our Heavenly Father, for this marvelous truth and this marvelous predestined plan that we will get to see with our eyes one day and that we take by faith now. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.